0: This evening we're going to be in 1 Samuel 24. The last time we were in chapter 23 and we see that David gets back in the saddle of faith and courage, but he's still on the run from King Saul. And tonight David has an opportunity to kill the king, but he doesn't take it. And we'll kind of go into it. We'll go into it a little deeper than normally. Uh, it's, it's pretty fun to look at. Okay, we're going to jump in with verse 1. It says, Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So in context, as soon as the, if you were here for the last one, as soon as the Philistine problem is over, King Saul is back to chasing David. Now it's kind of sad that there were those that instigated Saul in his maddening pursuit. David uh, has about 600 men at this point, Saul has 3,000, and he's going after him. And we're going to look as we go through the next several chapters before David becomes the king, there are going to be these instigators and they weren't doing anyone a favor. Of course, they weren't doing David a favor, and they weren't doing the king a favor, who they supposedly were loyalty, loyal to, because he was kind of out of his mind, and they were just making him more crazy. Uh, you know, when somebody's unstable, the last thing you wanna do is instigate them in their madness, and this is what seems to be happening. And you know, I know that all of us here at some point, maybe you had an issue with someone, and uh, I see a lot of smiles, like you know what I'm gonna say. <laughs> And there's a person, a third party, who stirs it up, who instigates. And then you're on the receiving end of it. It's no fun. But then if we're honest with ourselves, there might be times where we've been the instigator. So it's just when you've been the victim of some instigation, you realize that, you know what, maybe I don't want to do that to someone else because I know how it feels. And the question is, are we an instigator or are we a peacemaker? Hopefully we're peacemakers. Two, King Saul is driven. He barely tends to his kingly needs. Now you could imagine he's the king of this country and they have a lot of needs. And every time he he has to purposely attend to something, as soon as he gets a break from that, he's going and he's going to chase David again. Now it's not bad to be motivated, but I think we have to evaluate the roots of our motivation. It's good to be not not lazy. It's good to be diligent. It's good to be a go-getter. But what are the roots of our motivation? So we need to look at that as well. Do we have our priorities right? Obviously, King Saul did not. Now, it's a humorous portion because we're leaving off with King Saul having to attend to his needs, which means he probably had to go number two. So, hey, listen, it happens to the best of us, you know? And he, I'm not going to go too deep into that, but so he's got his kingly robe, and it's flowing, and he's the king, and the robe was a, a, you know, a symbol of his authority, so it probably was very elaborate. Well, if he has to go to the bathroom, he's got to take his robe off and fold it up, put it somewhere so he can do his business. So that's where we leave off. Okay, we're going to go in verse 4. The Bible kind of doesn't cut corners, you know, it kind of makes sure we understand everything about what's going on. Four. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. Now, it's very plausible that, um, you know, the robe is maybe folded up and David... it's quite possible the idea was to cut his head off you know that's just the way warfare was back then he's not expecting David to be there and could have you know come up behind him and killed him and then said hey I'm the new king but what he did was he you know had second thoughts about this plan and he probably took some of the robe and cut off a corner of it and then just kind of folded it back over and took that corner so when Saul comes and he puts his robe back on he doesn't know it's missing because it's in a part that he didn't see it I like, I have a very vivid imagination. So in my mind, I'm trying to figure the whole scenario out, Uh, but it's, it's good conjecture there anyway. So David's men try to convince him that King Saul is vulnerable. And this is David's opportunity from the Lord to turn things around. Now I'm going to go into a little bit of their maybe mindset and, and the issues that they were dealing with. Now, these guys are on the run. Maybe they're away from their families. Maybe they're away from their farms. Maybe they're away from whatever it is, but they've chosen to be loyal to to David, and they're tired. You know, they're, uh, some estimate that uh, David might have been on the run for up to ten years. So there's a long time of being a fugitive, and and God protected them through all this. But they're tired, and they're like David. Come on, just there he is. He's in the cave. This is the chance. This is God smiling on you. Just kill him, so we can take. You know, we can. I can be the general, and he can be the lieutenant, and we can go back to our families. Again, it's speculation. So David cuts a piece of the robe, and then he even feels bad about that. Now there's understand that the Bible covers everything. It covers when people lie. It covers when people misunderstand. It covers when people uh, think that they hear from the Lord and they haven't. It covers polygamy. Well, I thought that God, that's right. It's very clear, right in the law. Only one wife. Why these guys take multiple wives? They were disobedient. But the Bible still records that disobedient history. And these men suffered because of their disobedience, especially Solomon in that case. So David said, I won't kill him because he's the Lord's anointed. Now, there might be other things going on as well in David's heart. Remember, his wife, that's his father-in-law, the king. It's the king. He probably had some type of bond with him when they were you know, discussing how to take on Goliath. Uh, you know, you've got to go through your mind of this history. Uh, there is uh, Jonathan, his best friend. That's his father. So there's got to be some emotional struggle in David's heart as well about killing this man, King Saul. Probably hoping the guy just says, okay, I relinquished the kingdom and it's yours. Now, again, the men say to David, this is, their, this is your opportunity from the Lord. Now, how do we know that they were wrong? Um, I'm curious to know where this statement came from because I couldn't find it anywhere in Scripture, uh, this particular one in verse 4, and I'm going I'm to get to that. And I think one of the most difficult decisions we can have is when do I do it this way or do I do it that way? You know, I've heard the preaching you come to a crossroads in life, you come to a fork in the road, you can't go straight anymore. You have to make a decision do I go this way or do I go that way? Do I just kill him because he has anointed me? You know, Samuel went through the whole uh, s- ceremony and he really unanointed Saul by t- saying the kingdom is, is wrenched from you this day and you no longer have my favor. Uh, so he could have killed the king. Uh, he says he wouldn't because it's the Lord's anointed, but I got it. Listen, I'm not going to get dogmatic on this, but Saul was kind of unanointed at this point, all right? The other thing is to just, just trust the Lord and say, well, you know, I, hide, I hold that position of the Lord's anointed on such high esteem, even though he's not behaving as such, and I'm just not going to do it, and I'm going to trust the Lord. And that's the fork in the road that he took. Um, Again, you go through those crossroads in your life, and both decisions look kind of both equally plausible, and you say to yourself, gee, which one do I take? And that's probably one of the most difficult decisions that we ever face. Now, David really risked his own insurrection. His men are getting tired of this, They're tired of being fugitives. David, come on, here's your chance. He comes back, well, I got a little piece of the corner and I kind of feel bad about that. Oh, gee, this was your, so I don't know. Was he risking some insurrection in the camp because of that decision? Uh, But you got to give David credit. He really stuck to his convictions. We're going to talk about that a few times tonight. So let's go into this quote again, back in verse 4. The men of David say to him, this is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. Now, where did that come from? Did David say, hey, I heard this from Gad the seer or I heard this from the priest when he consulted the Urim and the Thummim? We don't know. Uh, Did David say that at all or did they just make the assumption? Because it doesn't come up again, it's not before. And the truth is King Saul doesn't die by David's hand. So where did that come from? The other quote in verse 6, again, is David saying, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing his, he is the anointed of the Lord. Again, at this point, King Saul has already had the kingdom removed to him from him, and he's told that through Samuel. And David was anointed with the oil. So there's this kind of weird, uneasy situation where David's anointed, Saul's unanointed, but Saul's still the king, and David's on the run. And in a few chapters later, we'll see that come together. Saul dies by the hand of the Philistines, and David takes the throne. Again, David had very strong convictions, and that's very admirable. Um, And even today, as we go through life and we look at our culture, look at politics, you know, the elections are coming up again, big elections, and what do you hear? The term flip-flop. Well, I'll tell you what, it's been said of both our current president and probably the one who's going to be the Republican contender. Both of them have been accused of flip-flopping. So the fact that you can actually stand your ground, and if you're really a principled person, and it's within God's uh, will, and you stand on that, that's very admirable. Because in a society that we we live in, people flip-flop based on the wins of what's going to be good for them or not good for them. There's very few people we see that are leaders in this country that will stand on principles and not move off of them. So this was a definitely admirable quality in David. Verse 8. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, or my Lord, excuse me, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now understand those words are spelled the same, but in the Hebrew, there's a different connotation. My Lord, my master, it was a a term of respect for somebody in high authority. So Lord, little l for King Saul, but when we speak of the Lord, it's a completely different understanding, different concept. We're talking about God. So it's translated Lord, but understand it's a different context there. And I believe it's a different word as well. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Now or no one see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore, let the Lord be judge, and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. So, this short change of a few verses really has a lot of punch to it. I'm going to go through a few points to this exchange between King Saul and David. Uh, David puts himself and his men in great danger by doing this if the conversation went south. <laughs> so in other words, if Saul said, huh, is that you, David? Men, flank them right, left. Look, we've got them. Let's take them. Let's seize them. But David put feet on his faith in this situation. He really trusted that things were going to work out. Uh, and, and Saul's heart kind of got softened, and we'll, we'll, we'll come to that as well. But he trusted He trusted, again, with his convictions that it wasn't going to turn out the way I just explained it. Convictions, again. What about us? What are our convictions like? And do we put feet on our faith? And do we say, well, I trust God, but actually live it out? David had to live it out. He had no choice. He was a fugitive, right? Sometimes we can just say it and we speak the Christianese and the Christian lingo, but the truth is... Our actions don't always show that we're trusting God. That's important. Two, David shows him respect, although King Saul's behavior wasn't deserving of it. Now, he addresses him as my Lord. He puts his face to the earth, and he bows down before him, and he says, I won't kill you. Now, this is, again, in a society that we live in, we're seeing more and more in American society the breakdown of respect. There's a lack of respect for authority. Schools are different, you know, uh, how kids years ago used to respect their teachers. Uh, and you see a lot of these authority positions just not get respected. Politics, um, you know, your local politician. Actually, years ago, you know, politicians only serve for a certain amount of time, and then they would get out of office and give someone else a chance. So now some of these politicians, they're in there for decades. They're just power grabbers. Well, they, they've kind of contributed for that lack of respect. Uh, sometimes even in the church, you know, when uh, the church only wants my, my money. So part of the lack of respect is, is deserved, and some of it just isn't deserved. It's just a disrespectful kind of climate that we live in. I actually saw uh, a story about a, a World War II veteran, an uh, older man, much older man, and he went to get gas, and he was carjacked, and he was beat so badly that his leg was broken. This was in Chicago. And he's trying to crawl to the, the, you know, the gas station through the gas station islands, through the little, you know, mart there, to call for help. And people were just kind of. There's an old man on the floor crawling. He just got carjacked. The people were literally stepping over him. It's kind of heartbreaking to read the story. But a lack of respect. You know, is a a person on the floor. You know, they're obviously in pain. Uh, And and he even asked the woman if she would open the door and hold it for him. And she kind of was leery about it. And this is the society we live in. This guy's a, you know, it's really sad. Where's, where are we with respect? As we keep looking at these terms, we should put ourselves in that position and ask, where do I fit in with some of these characteristics? Three, he says, why do you listen basically to the troublemakers who make you think that I'm a threat to you? Right? And if we look at the Proverbs, and Proverbs were um, pieces of wisdom that would go around, but God specifically used Solomon to write many of the Proverbs. But some of these things were said by men of God, and eventually later they were written down. So this one proverb was, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. Again, what else would you expect to proceed from the wicked but wickedness? But David said, far be it from me, I'm not going to go down that path. Um, you know, troublemakers. and <laughs> We put ourselves in there. Are we looking to be peacemakers or are we looking to instigate? Four, David pleads his case of innocence. He basically says, listen, I had the opportunity. I had a knife. I had the opportunity. You didn't know I was here, but I didn't kill you. What more do I have to do to convince you, King, that I'm not looking to kill you? And five, David calls him my father, which is a term of endearment. Now, he technically is his father. You know, in Middle Eastern country, if you had a father-in-law, you took him on as a father, and he took you on as an extra son or daughter, right? Uh, so there is, there is a closeness there, and I wonder if David is reminiscing of the days where things kind of started out good. You ever, you ever get involved in a relationship, and then it, it, over the years it kind of goes bad, and you say, gee, what happened? Where did it go wrong? You know, I used to eat with King Saul, you know, my wife Michelle, and and the whole family, and and this is where we're at. But this is a term of endearment. David did not want to fight with King Saul on multiple levels. Six, David, in all humility, considers himself a dead dog or a flea. Now, uh, in our society, a lot of us are dog lovers. I mean, I've had a dog now for the last few months. But in that society, being a dog was a, a very low insult. If you call somebody a dog, I mean, those were fighting terms. So he says to him, I'm a dead dog. I'm a flea. King Saul, I'm nothing. Why would you waste your resources on me? I'm pathetic. He really puts himself in a position of humility, and possibly that humility is what goes a long way into saving his life. So consider that. Um, If he started to, you know, thump his chest and, and, you know, kind of go back and forth with Saul, maybe it would have ended differently. Hey, get off my back. But he says, listen, I'm a dead dog. I'm a flea. You know, I, even if I was, I I couldn't hurt you if I wanted to. And the last but not least important is he says, the Lord judge between us. Now you can never go wrong if, especially if it's another believer and you integrate the Lord or his word into that situation. Having a relationship problem and you say, you know what, why don't we just seek the Lord's counsel here? Why don't we just see what the Lord will do? See who's right and who's wrong. You know, we should stop fighting about this. So this is, sometimes you have to do this, but don't be shocked when it doesn't go well. Um, Years ago, I had a person in ministry, and they were going in the wrong direction, and I had to sit them down, and I explained the biblical precept to them, and this person said to me, don't give me that crap. Well, as you can imagine, he wasn't in leadership much longer after that. So sometimes you're dealing with a fool. Sometimes a person's true colors come out, but you can never go wrong if you interject the Lord, you know, we, we need a mediator. Isn't that the whole salvation story? We're sinners. We've offended God. We can't get to heaven on our own. Doesn't matter how many friends you have, doesn't matter how many people in popularity polls. We needed a mediator. Job said that. Where's my mediator who's going to plead my case before God? I think he hates me right now. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Right? So Jesus came as that mediator. Praise God that we live in the age post-Jesus and his resurrection, that we can call on him as our mediator. So that's really, really important. Now, I, I can't take credit for this, but I did read somewhere that, uh, and in Numbers 15, it says that the tassels and the embroidery at the edge of a, a, a robe would indicate that you would have to uh, you know, remember the law and your obligation to obey it. So it is quite possible that when David cut that, he took off his remembrance And Saul was in a bad place as it was. (laughs) He didn't need any help being any more wicked. So, you know, it's just conjecture, but it is interesting. And David gave this man every opportunity to change his ways. Sometimes we're in a situation with a a relationship with a carnal believer, and maybe we just keep giving them times, giving them chances, and, and at some point the relationship is just not edifying anymore. Verse 16. So it was, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, "'Is this your voice, my son David?' And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, "'You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely?' Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And they lived happily ever after. (laughs) Not quite, and I'm glad you're all awake this evening. (laughs) What do we know? We know that if we keep reading, that Saul comes after him again, right? That's what we know. So two things this could be, and maybe there's a third option, but I came up with A, King Saul is just a phony, or two, He's actually convicted in the heat of emotion, but let's explore both of these. Let's look at the first one. He's a phony. What's scary is, I mean, if you could write a script, a perfect script of repentance, that's the script. But he's using the lingo. And we know that later on he's chasing David again. And that's tough. You know, the Bible tells us that man looks at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. And even in church, there will be those people that may be talented, popular, well-respected in the community, whatever the case may be, and their heart is not right. As we can see, this was the perfect script for anyone to repent, but there was no follow-through. So the second point, it brings us to that, is convicted in the heat of emotion. Here's the problem. If you don't follow up with behavior, then it's not repentance. Repentance is more of an action. And some, some words in the Bible are like mindsets, but there are other words in the Bible that there's actually an action that happens. And repentance is a really a turning, is a turning from your wicked ways back to the ways of the Lord. And we know that this does not happen. Um, Heather's doing the James study with the women. Faith without works is dead. They go together, right? And I find it fascinating that the last verse is... <laughs> This is one of those awkward moments. Oh, father-in-law, I love you. Give me a hug. Oh, David, you're like a son to me. Hey, let's all get together. Let's combine our armies. Let's have a feast and let's go home. No, David goes to the stronghold. He takes his men. He doesn't completely trust him. Now there's, again, you can find anything in the scripture and you can apply it to your own life. Right? There may be some with a pattern of this type of King Saul behavior. I look at trust. I look at relationships like the building of a house. Right? If, you, if someone is trying to destroy, one of the parties trying to destroy that trust, it's like taking a bunch of you know, C4 and packing it in a house and then you know, hitting the, the switch and blowing the place up. And you have a big mess and the dust is all over and it's got to settle. And here's trust. Trust is waiting for the dust to settle. It's cleaning all the debris out, putting it in the dumpster. It's pouring the foundation again. It's taking the blocks and setting it in the mortar joints. It's framing the house, and it's putting all the integral parts inside of the framing. See, see what I'm saying? We can forgive, and I believe David fully forgave him, but it was going to take a while before he learned to trust Saul again. Right? That's what infidelity does. That's what um, not keeping a friend's confidence does. A lot of these things cause a destruction of that relationship. And that trust may take time again. I always use the example, if you, if you are watching my kid on the weekend and I come back and you've beat my son, I can forgive you, but you're probably not going to be watching him next Saturday night. You know what I'm saying? So this is where trust comes in. And I think for us as well, a good lesson is that King Soul had no follow-up. How many times as believers, really, I mean, we, read, we hear the Bible Wednesday, we read it on our own, we do a daily bread, we listen to it on Sunday. How many times, and, and I've been guilty of this, do I am caught up in the moment, I'm like, oh, I'm so cut to the heart, and then I go home and nothing changes. Don't we do that? We should do it less. So King Saul, of course, you know, hopefully we, we don't become like a King Saul, but on a much lesser uh, level, we do that. As believers, we should be convicted and we shouldn't just say, oh, oh, we go through the, you know, the drama, but to actually follow through with it. And that's what he was guilty of not doing. So I just want to wrap it up with a few good points to consider. Number one, King Saul conceded to David's righteousness. Now, did that make life easier for David? No, not a whole lot changed in the physical realm, but that was a spiritual blessing. I'm still on the run, still a fugitive. Things are going to get scary for a while, but you know what? He conceded that. And again, that's good in a spiritual sense. You may be in a situation where someone who, who considers you an enemy or someone who's an antagonist in your life concedes to your righteousness. And we're going to cover this in Titus chapter 2 on Sunday. Do we handle ourselves in a godly manner, even when it's contentious? Not always easy to do. We need to employ the strength and the, the power of the Holy Spirit two i believe and i don't think i think everybody would agree with me here is that king saul was afraid of david yes he was the king he was a tall man he was a grand man he was popular he was the people's choice he had all the armies and all the the, the armor but he was afraid of david because david was a threat to his life and his throne and like david sometimes we may be getting pounded in a situation it could be at work it could be within your own family. It could be within your social group, right? Who knows? I've actually counseled some and I've said, you know what the truth is? They're afraid of you. No way, Pastor Joe. Oh, yes way. Trust me, you know. Let's go through this. They're afraid of you. You're a threat to them in some way. And this is how they, they put up their defenses and they go after you. When you are wrapped in God's protection, even your enemies... Will be frightened of you, because in their eyes you look a lot bigger than you are. I know it sounds really weird, but you know if you can cause someone that much, you know, to just go after you and to come after you, um, you they consider you a threat. Otherwise, they wouldn't bother with you. The third point: David had the upper hand and could have killed King Saul, but he didn't. Again, what about our situation? You know. What do we do when we have the upper hand? Do we trust God when we're unfairly treated? Do we always have to go for the coup de grace, the death blow? I mean, David had this proverbial you know, position on him, and he didn't take the, uh, the plunge. And we may be in situations, again, you know, hopefully we're not having to go out to battle or anything like that, or have a serious life or death situation, although that could happen. But we may be in a situation where there's someone who's just coming against us, coming against us, and God gives us the victory. And God reveals something that maybe nobody else saw and couldn't have seen unless he revealed it, and you become now the victor. How do we handle it? Do we get all pumped up and say, I'm going to bury that person? Or do we show mercy? Do we show grace? So as we look at these, let's look at these characteristics. And, And this is the study lately that last few weeks, especially in Titus as well, characteristics roles responsibilities characteristics courage they're all in there so we look at humility we look at respect we look at trust we look at do we handle ourselves in a righteous manner and like david there may be times where the lord will reverse and he will make us the victor and then the question is how will we handle ourselves in that situation let's pray Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always, and uh, what a blessing it is.